Uh, here we are in uh, Luke chapter 22, and I want to talk to you today about, about this. It's kind of the theme in one of the verses of that song that we just sang. Uh, and so here's what we're going to look at, how Jesus teaches us in the classroom of a failure. My sister came to the uh, service last night, she and her husband, and she said, well, you put that title up, I thought, I'm getting up and leaving, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> and I thought, thanks, sister, I really appreciate that. Uh, but it, it's, we're going to talk about this a little bit for a minute, because there is a struggle in life today. People don't know what to do with failure. I mean, they, they fail and they react poorly. They crater, they walk away from the Lord if it's a spiritual failure. You have generations of, of, of young adults who have grown up and their parents have not taught them a theology, if you will, a theology of failure, how to process that, what God does with that. And so they struggle with it. They come into the workforce and they fail and they, and, and they get mad if you correct them or they fall apart or they just leave because they're embarrassed and they don't know what to do. And people don't know how to handle this lesson. So here's, uh, I kind of set it up this way. My dad uh, was a bass fisherman when I was growing up, and so I did some of that fishing with him, uh, even up to being a young adult. When we had our kids, and we got busy with kids, and I was coaching baseball and softball with our daughter and son, and all that, quit fishing and all that. And so when our kids went off to college, and we're living in Arkansas, and there's a lot of lakes and rivers and stuff, so I, I had a friend that taught me into getting a fishing kayak. And so I bass fish out of a kayak. And if you know, this is great fun. It sounds weird, but it's great fun. I mean, it really is. And so I'm learning how to fish and, and again. And so the great thing about now modern technology, so I'll be out there with my, and my dad is back in Memphis and I'm in Arkansas, but I can just take my phone out and I can call him and I'd say, okay, dad, fish are not biting. And he'd say, take a picture. I'd take a picture of the shoreline or wherever I was and I'd text it to him. And, you know, what's the water depth? And, you know, we'd talk through it and he'd help me stuff and coach me through that. So um, about this time, a couple of years ago, I was the interim pastor at First Baptist in Monticello, and I went to one of our state parks there close to Monticello, and we had a great, it was Easter weekend, we had a great Easter service, people say, it was just exciting, and so Janet and I were camping in our camper in this state park, so we went back, had to relax that night, so I got up Monday morning, I thought, well, I'm going to go fishing before you know, I go back to the office. And so I get out, wet a hook, do a little fishing. And I'm out fishing that morning, beautiful morning, celebrating Easter, folks saved, all that good. Man, I get a bite. <laughs> Last night, the bass was about four pounds. This morning, it's six and a half pounds, right? That was the size of the bass because I'm learning how to fish, and that's what fishermen do, right? Fish gets bigger every story. <laughs> Man, I'm rolling that thing in. I'm, I'm, I'm having at it. It's great fun. It's moving my kayak around like that. I'm, I land this whale, put it in the deck. I, I call my dad. I send him a picture. I call him. I said, look at this fish, man. This is an awesome fish. And he goes, man, what were you using? And so I tell him, and he goes, send me a picture of where you are. So I send him a picture of the shoreline, and he goes, and he says, Greg, that's the dumbest fish in any lake in Arkansas. I don't know how that fish got that big, that stupid. Because if you caught him, he certainly had better opportunities than you presented. Because you did everything wrong. And I thought, man, Dad, what a buzzkill. I mean, that's terrible. I mean, really? And he goes, listen, you messed up. Do you want to learn and get better or not? Do you, you want to just wander through your mistakes and every now and then, uh, even a blind squirrel finds an acorn every now and then? Or do you want to find 
the joy of this? Do you want to learn how to do it? Do you want to be better at it? Do you want to be successful? Do you want to learn from this mess up? And see, that's what Jesus does with us, and that's the picture I want you to see today, is that Jesus doesn't leave us in our failures, and he doesn't judge all that. Jesus comes into our lives, and he uses them as a classroom to grow us, to develop us, to teach us. The verse in that last song where he says, all my failures and flaws, you've already seen them, and you love me anyway. Nothing is better than him. Because he uses these moments. I want to give you, before we read this morning, the big idea that we're going to look at. You see, Jesus loves you knowing ahead of time that you're going to fail and make mistakes. And he uses these as a classroom to teach us and to transform us in his image. And that's what you're going to see in the life of Peter today. This is a famous story, and you've read it before if you've been in church any amount of time. But I want you to see the interaction between Jesus and Peter and how this works. Here in Luke 22, um, starting in the first part of the chapter, here's where we find ourselves in context. Jesus has been leading them in what they called at that point the Passover Supper, and we call it now the Lord's Supper. And he's teaching them how he is the fulfillment of that. And then he goes through some other teaching. And you see in verse 21, he says, Behold, the hand of the one who is betraying me is with mine on this table. And he tells them, he drops that bomb at this moment that, man, somebody's going to betray me in the moments that are about to come. And he's right here, one of us. Verse 23, they begin to discuss amongst themselves which one of them it might be who's going to do this thing like, you know, it's got to be it's got to be Nathaniel over there. That guy's been wrong ever since we've known him. Or like, you know, oh, James over there. That's just a shifty dude, you know. It's got to be him. And they're arguing about that. And then somehow the argument goes from that to verse 24. Then there arose a dispute among them also as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And you can hear Peter going, well, you know it's not me because Jesus loves me more than y'all. And I'm going to be at the right hand of the Father. And here they, like how you get from that one argument to the other, I have no idea. But that's what they did. And then Jesus rebukes them and he says, if you write in your, if you underline your Bibles, verse 27. He teaches them the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That's how it works. If you're going to be the greatest, you've got to be the greatest servant. And he says here at the end of verse 27, I am among you as the one who serves. And that's what he did when he went to the cross for us, to serve us. And then he says, yeah, you guys will be faithful and you're going to have kingdoms and you're going to have rewards for that. But then he gets personal and he looks at Peter in verse 31, our passage today, and he says, Simon, Simon. He, he calls him by his most personal name. He grabs a hold of him. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And right there, that you is all of them. So he says, Peter, Satan is going to sift your group here. You and your brothers, he's going to come after you and try to do something in your life. But then in verse 32, he gets back personal to Peter and says, I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, then you're going to strengthen your brothers. When they all go through this struggle, Peter, you're going to struggle too. But you're going to come through that and I'm going to transform you and then you are going to strengthen them. Peter says, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And Jesus says, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. They finish the supper, they head out, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane in that scene that we know. 
It says in verse 40, when he arrived at that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, and he knelt and began to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours. And you see there where he's praying, and the Bible says sweat, his drops of blood, and all that. Verse 45, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He's just warned Peter, you're going to fail in this moment of spiritual warfare. And Peter falls asleep and is not praying. You go, they, they arrest Jesus, they take him, they take him off, and then it sets this setting in verse 54 where Jesus is over here in the front of this house and he's going through this experience where they're accusing him and they're setting him up to be tried and all that, and right outside is this fire and the crowd that is following this, watching this, they're standing around this fire just a short distance away from where Jesus is. Verse 55, they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together and Peter was among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, looking intently at him, says, I recognize you. You were with him too. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, certainly, certainly, this man was also with him, for he is a Galilean too. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And before the words had died off of his lips, the Bible says immediately while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. And in that moment, in this incredibly poignant moment here, the rooster crows, Jesus knows what happened, Peter knows what happened. The Bible says the Lord turned from where he was and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And you think, man, that's a downer on a Sunday morning. Man, that's brutal. But listen, failure is what we go through. We all struggle with that. But here's what I want you to know. It's not about the failure. It's about the growth. It's about the transformation. It's about the faithfulness of Jesus. Truth number one I want you to see from this passage today. Jesus prepares us for these moments ahead of time, ahead of time. I love this picture. Jesus doesn't just let Peter run off and hit this wall by himself without any kind of instruction or help. Jesus steps into him and says, look, Peter, you're about to go through this. It's going to be hard. I want you to know, I already know, I've already prayed for you. He tries to teach him. He tries to encourage him. He steps in ahead of this knowing that it's going to come because that is his work that he does in our lives. You see, not only do his failures not put us off, he came because of our failures. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and that sin has to be judged. Everyone who's listening to this, if you're watching on the internet, if you're in this room, you are old enough to know you have done stuff that your conscience has been pricked and you need to be forgiven for. Everybody here has failed. Everybody has told a lie, messed up, broken something, not done what you're supposed to do, failed in a commitment, uh, chosen sin. Every one of us has sinned. 
And here's the beauty of who Jesus is. He saw us in heaven. He saw us make a mess of all this. And he said, I'm not satisfied with that. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus stepped out of heaven, came and lived this sinless life. These pictures that we have, nothing defeated him. He did everything perfectly. And then in another chapter or so later, Jesus voluntarily goes to the cross. And there his perfect sinless life dies a death that he was not required to die. But he did it because he loves you and me. You see, for the wages of sin is death. Somebody's got to pay the price for my sin. I'll die one day as a man because I'm a sinner. But Jesus would have never died as a man, but he went to the cross so that his death that has no sin or judgment attached to it can be a substitutionary death for us. And when you come and you give your life to Jesus, when you trust him as your savior, what that really means is you believe that that happened and you believe it is a historical fact and then in your life you surrender your sin to him and trust his death to pay the price for your sin. And a spiritual exchange occurs. You give your sin life to Jesus and he gives you his righteous eternal life. He pays the price for our sins on the cross. You see, that's why he came. But here's the deal. I was saved at the downtown campus when I was a nine-and-a-half-year-old boy. One morning at the end of Sunday morning service, I was sitting right up the equivalent right there in that section. That's my people right there. End of the service, man, I came down and gave my life to Jesus at nine-and-a-half. But here's the deal. When Jesus looked down the quarters of time, he saw what a mess I was going to be as a teenager. And he saved me anyway. He saw as a 20-year-old, man, I was going to struggle trying to set direction in my life and what I was going to do, and he saved me anyway. When I was, when I was called to ministry at 30, and, and I had to learn and had to start learning, and I should have known more than I did in all of those struggles, Jesus saved me anyway. As a 56-year-old guy uh, walking through life, still struggling with some of the sins I've always struggled with, still in some of those brokenness, Jesus saved me anyway. And he saved me to help me through those and to teach me from those and to transform me into his image. That's what he does. And that's what he's doing here in Peter. And I love this picture because it shows Jesus is there ahead of us and his purpose in this moment is not to bring Peter down or not to judge him ahead of time, but to say, Peter, I've been there ahead of you and I'm going to use you in this. He does not want Peter to lose the lesson of the classroom. Look at him teaching him. Here's about spiritual warfare. Peter, Satan is going to sift you. There's spiritual warfare that goes on in our lives. If we were not still facing spiritual warfare, then why did God waste half of a chapter in Ephesians 6 to tell us to put on the whole armor of God that we stand against the schemes of the devil? If we don't face that spiritual warfare, why in the world did he create in that warrior passage the picture of a prayer warrior wearing that armor? You see, he teaches him. He teaches him, look, there's hope at the end of this, Peter. I I'm going to use this for ministry in your life. He teaches him how it works. He teaches his responsibility to his brothers and sisters around him. He instructs him. And then he prays. In a moment, I'm going to cover that more. But just see that Jesus tells him, I've prayed for you ahead of time. And then he gives him encouragement. Peter, you're going to turn back, son. You're going to work through this. You're going to repent. You're going to come back. And then I'm going to use that for ministry in your life. Peter, there is light at the end of this tunnel. Peter, there is, dar there is darkness in the failure, but there is a light in the restoration. You're going to be weak, but I'm going to make you strong. And then I'm going to use you. You see, that's what Jesus does. He knows they're coming and he warns us. But like my dad told me, do you want to learn? Do you want to get better? 
You see, there's all this instruction here in Scripture, and he's given it to us before we walk through these struggles. But the question is, are we investing ourselves and learning and allowing Jesus to teach us through these? When we hit a wall and we do fail, we give in to that temptation. We mess up in our married life. We mess up in our career. We harm our testimony with some choice we make. Do we pull back from Jesus? Do we crater in that moment? All throughout COVID, man, people have been home. Their schedules have been messed up. They've walked away. They've struggled with stuff. They've been out of their routines. And now here's the question. Are you going to come back to the Lord? Are you going to come back in church? Are you going to invest back in your group and the people that love you and grow? You see, how are we going to treat this time? Are we going to learn? Truth number two, some reasons that we fail. There are some great lessons in here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this part, but I want you to maybe have these ideas and think in your quiet time this week as part of Jesus teaching you ahead of time. We fail because we're sinners. Look, we, he knows we're going to sin. We talked about that. Even when you get saved, when I got saved, I still looked a whole lot more like a lost person than a saved person because we're working through this transformation process and you're going to blow it. It's okay. He knows ahead of time you're going to blow it. Just strap up and learn and let him teach. This is a terrible situation he went through. But we live in a fallen world. Man, we were built to walk in the Garden of Eden in the presence of God. We were not made to slog through the mess that we deal with every day. And life is hard. And stuff goes wrong. And people around us mess up stuff and hurt us. And it's, it's just a struggle. And there are times we're going to have struggles. But you need to know in those difficult times that Jesus has been ahead of you and prayed for you. Fair to heed scripture. Look at the context in the setting of this. In the Passover supper, man, they're singing psalms as a part of this meal, and they're walking through scripture, and Jesus is pointing out, I am the Messiah and the fulfillment of this. In Matthew's version of this conversation with Peter, he quotes directly from the prophet Zechariah. In Luke, the part that he gives us of the conversation, he quotes from Amos. I mean, he is speaking scripture into Peter's life, and Peter is not taking heed. I listened to the message that Pastor Steve gave you on being a hearer and doer of the word. Man, that's incredible Bible teaching. You need to go back and listen to that a lot more. It needs to not be a sermon, but it needs to be a life lesson for us. It is incredible teaching this point. And we need to be hearing and following Scripture because Jesus is speaking into our lives with it. Pride. Look at Peter. <laughs> I ain't going to fail. I'll die with you, Jesus. I'm the man. I mean, he argues with Jesus. Can you imagine? It's not the first time he's argued with Jesus. He argued with him before. Jesus said, I'm going to be lifted up on the cross. And Peter said, no, you're not. That is not going to happen. And Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. I mean, he's like arguing with him all the time. Pride goes before a fall, Scripture says. He even whips out his sword and cuts off this guy's ear trying to show how bad he is and protect Jesus in this moment. And yet, a little girl at a campfire challenges him and he fails. Now, here's the beauty of this picture, though. Later on, when Peter writes these letters, 1 and 2 Peter, he tells us in 1 Peter, he reiterates that fried Pride goes before a fall. And he writes this. He quotes from the Old Testament. God resists the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Let me ask you a question. If you're in a struggle this morning in life, do you want God to help you or do you want God to resist you in that moment? See, we've got to learn to conquer this pride deal. And if God has got to allow us to fail at the fire in order to change our character, he will do that because to him it's just a classroom where we grow. Prayerlessness. When Matthew tells his story, Luke goes over very quickly high level, but Jesus says he brings them to the garden and he says, you guys stay here and pray. And he says, Peter, James, and John, Peter is in this group. You come with me and you guys sit right here and I need you all to pray for me. And Jesus goes over here and prays. And Matthew says three times he comes back and they're asleep. The first time he comes back, he tells Peter, specifically Peter, Pray and be watchful that you will not fall into temptation. Did you not hear what I told you just a couple of hours ago? Satan is coming after you and you're sleeping. I would like to think in my life that Jesus warned me I'm about to mess up like that, that I would be praying about that. And yet in our lives, there are times of prayerlessness and that creates our struggle. But truth number three I want you to see, just because we fail to pray doesn't mean that Jesus failed to pray. In fact, this is beautiful right here. I do not want to gloss over this point. Sometimes we think of that, we pray, and Jesus prayed, yeah, and all that. And we just kind of go through that because we think that's not that deep or special or whatever. But I think it's an incredible deal that Jesus gives us this specific picture of this journey with Peter and how he's going to step into this before it happens to prepare him so it doesn't crush him. And what he tells him in the middle is, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Man, I want you to know what that struggle is that you are in now. Jesus got there before you did so he can pray a path through it for you. I mean, we get it. Theologically, the Bible teaches us where he is. In Hebrews, the Bible says that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. And yeah, we read that and that's good, but you know, we don't really understand heaven yet and get all that. And, and yet it is so vital and important in our lives that we understand when I am in this struggle, Jesus is praying for me. He's been praying for me. He's praying me through this. He's praying for all this. But we live in a tangible world and sometimes we need to know what that looks like. And so he gives us a picture right here. This is what it looks like. He wanted Peter in the middle of that weeping when he walks from that fire and he's struggling. He needed Peter to have lodged in his brain, hearing the voice of Jesus, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail and you're going to stick with me. And I want you to know in the middle of that struggle, whatever it is or however big it is, Jesus has already been praying you through it. Don't ever walk away from that truth. That's what it means when you give your life to Christ and the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you in Romans chapter 8 when he says, we don't know how to pray for ourselves as we ought to, but the Holy Spirit is there. He helps us in our weakness and he takes those questions and struggles and doubts and fears and hurts and guilt and all of that. And the Bible says he takes it and he translates it into a language that doesn't even have words and he connects that with the heart of God and he connects the heart of God back to us. That is the extent to which God himself is praying for you in that moment. And it becomes alive when you hear him tell Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Truth number four, 
Jesus focuses on our faith and not on our failures. Praise the Lord, Christian life is not, married by, is not measured by batting average. It's measured by yardsticks. You see, here's what happened. God is like your kids when you go home and you mark on the wall. You know, they stand on the wall and you mark where their head and you track that. Jesus doesn't get grade us on our batting average. He's not trying to see how much we fail or not fail. He is just constantly growing us to be like him. How is our measure growing? And he makes that clear to Peter here. Peter, I want you to know that I've prayed for your faith. And then here's what he also tells him. I've prayed for your faith that it won't fail. And Peter, you are going to repent and turn back. The word repent means turn back. It's a picture of that here. Peter fails and he denies Jesus and he goes away and he feels guilty and he's brokenhearted, but he repents of that. He turns back to Jesus. And Jesus gives him this moment where he says, I know that your faith will be whole and you will return because I have prayed for you to be solid through this struggle. I'm sort of fascinated by these moments in Scripture. And I love this incredible picture, the drama and the poignancy and the power of this moment where Peter is here in front of this crowd and all these people are picking on him and all these people are screaming at him and they're accusing him. You see, up to this moment, for the last three years, Jesus has been the man. And Peter was in the entourage of the man. Everywhere they went, people loved them. Everywhere they went, people brought folks to be healed. Everywhere they went, they were in awe of him. These Pharisees who trumped up these charges and they took Jesus away and arrested him, up to this moment, Jesus rebuked them in public and they walked away with their tail between their legs. But now, all of a sudden, Jesus is captive. It's coming apart. They've taken him, and he is now beginning to process, Jesus told me this would happen. He told us he'd betrayed, and he was. He told us he's going to the cross. Oh, my goodness. That's where we're headed. He's going to be crucified. You were with him. Not me. Not me. Yeah, you were with him. I saw you in those crowds. Not me. I don't know him. I'm not walking with him. And you see, Peter is in this moment, he doesn't understand, and he's struggling with it because it's this, it's this thing he's never been prepared for, and he's never been there. And then he says, I don't know him, and the, croc, the cock crows, the rooster crows, and there is this moment where you get this look between Peter and Jesus. And Peter remembers, I promised I wouldn't do that, and Jesus told me I did, and I have failed my Savior. I have destroyed everything we have worked for. And you see, Jesus understood and knew the power of the guilt of those moments in our lives. I love this description that John gives in John chapter 1 of Jesus. It says that he came in grace and truth. And it's the balance of those two things. Understand, Jesus will never whitewash your sin. He will convict you of your sin. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you need to understand your sin will be judged and send you to an eternity in hell. But the Bible says Jesus didn't come to condemn us because we were condemned by our sin already, but he came into the world that through him we might be saved. 
He came not just in truth, but he came in grace. And both of them are pictured here. And I just believe in the way that God describes this story here and Jesus' heart for Peter, here's what Jesus is thinking. Peter is going to crumble at that fire. And if we're not careful in this moment, Peter is going to walk away and I'm going to lose him forever. And I didn't come to lose, I came to win. I didn't come to lose Peter, I came to save Peter. I didn't come for him to be a milk toast and a coward and limp his way into heaven. I came for him to be in victory in all things. And he's thinking in his mind, I need to lodge in Peter's mind that there is hope. I need to lodge in Peter's mind that I love him. And when Peter looks up in brokenness and he sees Jesus and he's convicted of that sin, Jesus wanted him to understand, you look at me, Peter, you're going to make it through this, son. Peter, I got you. I have prayed for you. Your faith is not going to fail. Look at me, Peter. Yes, this is bad, but Peter, look at me. We're going to go through this together. I love these moments in Scripture where you get Jesus. I mean, there's a story where a leper comes up to Jesus, and that horrible disease, man, it eats your body away and open sores and pus and stuff falls off, and it's just horrible. You live your life quarantined away, and here's what happens. Man, this guy comes running up to Jesus because he knows Jesus can heal, and he asks this question that's heartbreaking. He asks Jesus, are you willing to heal me? Not can you. He doesn't know if he can trust Jesus. He doesn't know the heart of Jesus. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He risks by getting out in public and being where he can infect people, but he says, are you willing? And the Bible says Jesus looked at him, and he said, I am willing. The Bible tells a story of the guy we call the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus. He's struggling spiritually with his future. And he says, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you got to follow the commandments, knowing where this is going. And the guy says, oh, I'm perfect. I got it all together because that's what we do, right? We hide our failures from everybody else. And we go, I got this together. And he says, I got it all together. And Luke's version, go back and read it. Luke says, Jesus looked at him, comma, and loved him, comma, and said, the man didn't follow Jesus, but he walked away sad, knowing that he had walked away from the grace of Jesus who loved him. The Bible tells a story. Palm Sunday, I preached about the two thieves on the cross. And all these people are screaming at Jesus, and they're all ridiculing him. And then some guy on the cross starts ridiculing Jesus. And the guy on the other side has watched Jesus through this. He's seen people crucified his whole life. He's just been through it himself. He's never seen someone not fight the guard. He's never seen someone lay their arm down for the nail to go through it. He has never seen someone handle this kind of ridicule and this kind of deal, and he knows there's something different. And when that thief says, Jesus, get us off here, he's had enough, and he says, we belong here, but he does not. And he calls to Jesus and he says, please remember me. He calls out from the cross and the Bible says, Jesus turns and looks at him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Friend, I need you to know in the middle of your struggle, Jesus is looking into your life and your heart. He wants you to know how much he loves you and he wants you to see just how much he has grace in your life. 
And when you are struggling with that leprosy, when you look across that fire and you see Jesus and you know you failed, he wants you to see I love you and I got you. He wants you to hear him say, I am willing. He wants you to hear him say, this is how you have eternal life. He wants you to hear him say, I have prayed for you and your faith will not fail and you are going to grow through this experience. I got you. And that's what he wants you to know. And against that backdrop, truth number five is this. That's when he takes that mistake, when you allow him when you stay with him, when you don't pull away, when you don't crater, but you turn, he transforms mistakes into ministry. You think about the life of Peter. We know Peter for this failure, but we also know Peter as the man who preached on the day of Pentecost and thousands were saved and the church was birthed. You think about this. Peter as a coward at the fire. The question of a girl causes him to cower in fear. And yet a few days later, he stands in the courtyard with courage and he says, you crucified this Jesus, but he went to the cross for you and he died for you and he rose again for you. Repent and be baptized and be saved by this Jesus who was raised from the dead for you. God turned him from a coward to a courageous preacher. He tells them, look, Peter, I need you. I have a ministry for you. Peter, all of you guys are going to go through this struggle, but Peter, I got my eye on you. I'm going to pull you through this, and I'm going to turn this weakness into strength, and you are going to strengthen your brothers in this journey. I'm going to use how you grow through this as a testimony that's going to impact. Those two, leader, those two letters that we know as First and Second Peter, they wrote in the New Testament, Listen, Peter, who cowered under just the first moment of challenge, God uses him to write two letters that are addressed to Christians who have fled Jerusalem because of persecution and encourage them in their strength in Christ. You talk about taking weakness and making it strong. That's what God does in these moments. That's why he's got you in this. That's why he wants to coach you through this. That's why he's prayed for you. Because he's going to use you for his glory. Pastor Greg, how does that happen? It's, it's real simple. I mean, it's just real simple. We don't need to make it complicated. You respond in faith to Jesus. I, I've worked as best I can to show you how Scripture gives you a picture of Jesus. And I want you to first put your faith in his love. See who Jesus is. Faith is an active belief. It means you give your life. It means you stake your course. It means you rest all of who you are in that truth. And what I want you to do is believe in the love of Jesus. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I want you to see the love of Jesus, that he did this for you. He died for you. He was betrayed for you. He was tried for you. He went to the cross and died for you so that when he rose again, just like that thief on the cross, he could tell you, I've forgiven you and I am willing and you'll be with me me in heaven. 
trust in the love of Jesus. When you are across that fire and you have failed and you are in that journey and you see Jesus, I want you to trust that he still loves you. And he has a plan and he's working in your life. I want you to believe in his grace. I want you to believe he'll forgive you. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want you to trust in the grace of God that he's going to work and forgive. He's going to work and heal. He's going to work and grow. And then I want you to trust in the work of God in your life. I don't know what your journey is, but he does. Remember, he was there ahead of time. He's already prayed for you before you even went in that journey. If you'll get alone with him, if you'll spend time with him, if you'll look him in the face and let him look you in the heart and speak to you from his word, he'll take you on the journey to heal what's broken, to answer your questions, to equip you for use and ministry. You may this morning have messed up your finances and you need to do Dave Ramsey or you've messed up in your married life or parenting life and you need to come in and you need to get in counseling or find a brother and sister in Christ to minister to you. Listen, do not shy away from the work that God wants to do. Embrace the work. Take the journey. Step out in faith and trust that God will transform that moment into ministry. Remember what we sang. Our failures and flaws, you've seen them already. And you loved us anyway.